Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from Crawford School of Public Policy. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Uh, well, welcome to you all to this uh, special lecture. Uh, let me first acknowledge uh, the Ngunnawal people whose elders past and present are the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Uh, welcome especially to Ambassador Roberto Azevedo, uh, Director General of the WTO. Uh, prior to his appointment to this role, uh, he had a distinguished career in the Brazilian Foreign Service uh, and in its uh, Ministry of Foreign Economic Relations. Uh, Ambassador Azevedo has come to the helm of the WTO at a time when the stalled Doha round of trade negotiations uh, and the proliferation of bilateral FTAs and regional FTAs uh, was raising concern about the global trade regime. Uh, uh, we'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, his visit uh, coincides with important meetings here in Australia in the lead-up to our hosting the G20 summit in November in Brisbane. Uh, we're delighted that you could make the time to come to Canberra uh, and in particular to come to the university to speak with us, Roberto, because uh, this is uh, an enthusiastic and distinguished audience we have here uh, focused on a set of issues which I know is uh, dear to your heart. Uh, it also coincides your visit uh, with the launch of uh, uh, our latest issue of the East Asia Forum quarterly on the G20 at 5. Uh, and uh, a book of the same name, which is a product of a joint study by the Brookings Institution in Washington uh, and ourselves here at the ANU on the same subject. And an important theme in that, uh, an important theme in our work in the lead up to the G20 uh, has been to make the trade agenda more central to the G20 agenda. And I know uh, that in your meetings here in Australia, in Sydney over the weekend, with trade ministers from the G20, uh, you'll be focused on that uh, effort too. Uh, the health uh, of the global trade regime uh, is a core Australian interest, as you will understand. Uh, uh, middle power deeply involved in the international economy uh, as we are. Uh, and uh, it underpins our security as well as our prosperity, uh, especially when you look at the history of our success in integration into the global economy in the post-war period and especially in the last few decades or so uh, around uh, the success of East Asia's similar integration into the international economy. And uh, this audience is a symbol of uh, that interest. It's no accident that the Australian chair of the G20 has made the trade agenda, the trade regime, an important focus of interest uh, leading through the meeting in Brisbane. So uh, a lot of big questions that we're interested to hear you speak about. Uh, how? Uh, is the global trade policy regime travelling? Uh, the breakthrough on trade facilitation, which uh, distinguishes your early tenure uh, in the Director Generalship of the WTO, is a very important development from a number of perspectives, and uh, that's uh, what we're very interested in hearing your thoughts about this afternoon. Is there a new momentum around that breakthrough? Uh, and uh, can the success thus far transform the WTO? So on these questions, uh, invite uh, Ambassador 
Azevedo to talk to us this afternoon. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Professor Peter Drysdale, Ambassador Rubin Barbosa, um, colleagues from the Brazilian Embassy, um, distinguished guests, ladies, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, Professor, for the introduction, uh, the generous introduction. It is really a pleasure for me to be here. It's really um, um, fortunate that I found uh, moment in the tight schedule uh, of the B20, G20, all these uh, meetings to come to Canberra. I had a very useful uh, bilateral visit today with the um, um, Australian authorities uh, in general. Uh, very useful conversations, but it is a particular pleasure uh, to be uh, able to come to the Australian National University, ANU. Uh, this institution is quite well known uh, for its strong support to the multilateral trading system. Um, and I want to thank you for that. Uh, indeed, uh, many Australian uh, officials, government officials that I have met over the years, um, have a degree from this university on their CV. So I suppose you're doing something right. Uh, over the next few moments, I would like to address uh, the question, can the success in Bali uh, transform uh, the WTO, um, and I would start by saying that six months from Bali, we are at a very important juncture um, as we look to ensure that all decisions that were taken at that meeting are fully implemented, uh, including the trade facilitation agreement on streamlining customs procedures. Uh, we also have a very urgent task, which is to put in place a work program to conclude the Doha, the Doha round, the WTO negotiating uh, agenda. But this urgency doesn't come uh, from, the, from the deadlines which were set in Bali. Uh, it also stems from the, from the need uh, to deliver uh, growth and development gains that are on offer at this point in time, and also to prevent that further restrictive measures are put in place. A report that we published uh, just a few uh, weeks ago show that G20 members have continued to introduce trade restrictive measures uh, over the last six months um, at a slower pace, but they're still introducing uh, in, uh, restrictive measures. So in the past six months, we found that 112 new trade restrictive measures were introduced, down from 116. So we are slightly slower in terms of pace, but we're still introducing restrictive measures. So. Some liberalizing uh, measures are, of course, also put in place, but at the end of the day, the coat of protectionism is a little bit thicker today than it was before, and it keeps getting thicker. Now, building on Bali uh, to restore momentum in the WTO would be one very powerful way of reversing this trend, uh, creating a backstop and drawing a line on where we are so as to prevent future restrictive measures. On subsidies and tariffs, for example, uh, we could ensure that they don't continue to go up. Um, and I therefore welcome the leadership shown by uh, Prime Minister Abbott and Minister Robb, of course, to put trade, like Professor Drysdale mentioned, at the center of the uh, agenda of the G20 during Australia's uh, presidency. Uh, with a particular focus on trade as a tool for both growth and development. And I am looking forward to discussing these issues at the meeting of the G20, uh, trade ministers in Sydney this weekend. I'll be sending a very strong message uh, on the need for the G20 to support uh, the efforts that we are making in Geneva to capitalize on Bali and to put renewed life into the WTO. Economists estimate that the package that we agreed in Bali um, could be worth up to $1 trillion and create 21 million jobs worldwide. So even if we're talking only about economic 
um, we are seeing uh, a package that has very significant value. But that is not only um, the only value that we see in the Bali package. The Bali package also has a very important systemic value. Why? Because at, up until then, so for the last 18 years, we had never delivered one single multilateral agreement. So Bali was a real breakthrough. It was a tremendous boost uh, for the organization. But will it transform um, the prospects of the WTO and of the multilateral trading system over the long term and lead uh, to further negotiated outcomes? I think that's the question that we have to answer. Frankly, in my view, it is too early to tell. Um, but I think that it is clear that Bali created a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to achieve this change, to re revitalize the multilateral trade talks and to deliver significant gains in growth and development. Now, the progress that we make in the months ahead will be critical, and they will determine whether or not we can seize this opportunity. So let's take a look a little bit at the state of play uh, of trade, of the trade debate uh, in the world, but let's start with Australia. For, uh, for, for a while. And I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the role that uh, Australia played in delivering the Bali package. Both the government and the private sector, they were both engaged and they helped to create the conditions uh, which made the deal possible. Uh, so I want to thank um, Australia, both private and, and government sectors for the support that they gave. Australia is a trading nation um, with a small uh, population in relative terms, in a perfect, in my view, geographical position, uh, it is inevitable, of course, that trade be played a very major part of Australia's economic mix. Um, and today, Australia's exports of goods and services account for about 20% of the economy. It's a very significant number. Around 60% of the agricultural output is exported. And Australia is also a major services trader whether it be financial services, transport, education, health services, or a range of other sectors where Australia's location here in the Asia-Pacific area made it a key trade destination. And trade makes a big difference in people's lives as well. So more than 13% of Australia's jobs are export-related. And I have seen studies estimating that trade liberalization added about 25 to 3.5% uh, to the Australian economy over the past two decades. It also benefited the average Australian working family by about um, $3,900 per year. So by cutting red tape at the border, uh, like the Trade Facilitation Agreement envisages, uh, that should bring additional benefits to the economy. Now to take a very simple example, at present, exporters of oranges from uh, New South Wales or Victoria uh, or mango producers in Queensland, uh, they may have to provide up to 40 documents to 20 or more parties when they try to export their products. Now, this bureaucracy, of course, can cause lengthy delays, meaning not only uh, that shipments are spoiled, but also that money is lost. Now, delays in shipping uh, create unnecessary costs uh, for all exporters, Complex border processes raise the barriers of entry beyond the means, particularly of small and medium enterprises. So the new agreement that we have reached in Bali, uh, which will hopefully streamline and standardize the border processes and giving priority to perishable goods, uh, will help business across the region. We have no doubts about that whatsoever. But I, of course, don't have uh, to convince you of the importance of trade in open markets. Uh, Australia is indeed a leading voice for trade on the world stage. And as a founding member of the WTO in 1995 and of its predecessor, the GATT, uh, in 1947, Australia is a long-standing supporter of the multilateral trading system. You have always played a very key leadership role in the WTO. Um, the Cairns Group is one example, the Cairns Group of Agricultural Exporting Countries, uh, which Australia chairs in the WTO and have been long pushing for agricultural reforms in that context. Um, but there are other areas where Australia has been very active as well. Uh, services is another area uh, where Australia has been acknowledged as a leader for many years. Uh, more recently, 
It has been demonstrated by the fact that Australia is co-chairing uh, the TISA negotiations, the Trading Services Agreement um, negotiations in Geneva. Um, Australia has championed, for example, uh, the cause uh, to give voice uh, to, the, to the Pacific Islands, for example, for the small economies and countries in the region. Um, we welcomed uh, recently uh, Samoa, Vanuatu, Tonga to the WTO in recent years, and all those causes were championed by Australia. So this has added very important new voices in Geneva, given the challenges which are faced by these small island states um, because of their remoteness, of course, in small economies. Now, Australia has also been prepared to help the system when it was needed, and that was particularly the case in 2011, when 2011, when efforts were being made to find new approaches to advanced negotiations. And of course, those approaches were um, precisely the concepts that were needed to make Bali uh, possible. Australia is also very active at the regional level, of course, and as you know, the, through the Trans-Pacific um, uh, Partnership talks, uh, through your bilateral deals uh, with uh, Korea and Japan recently, and we, we, we expect that China may be coming, is in the pipeline at this point in time as well. There has been a great deal of speculation about such initiatives in recent times, and I am always asked about what kind of impact they have to the multilateral trading system. Uh, but I think it is important to recognize that these different tracks uh, exist, um, the regional track, the plurilateral, the regional track, all of these, they are not mutually exclusive. Rather, they can be symbiotic, um, and they have to exist together and complement each other. Now, APEC, for example, has been a very important testing ground, testing ground for initiatives, for example, like the uh, trade facilitation. Trade facilitation started in APEC with a discussion in there. Environmental goods, uh, the initiative that is now being, uh, was launched in, in, uh, in Davos this year, was also something that was tested in APEC and started with the concept that was developed in APEC, the 54 products and things like that, those who have been following that more closely. Now, these building blocks help uh, to build the edifice of trade, of global trade rules and trade liberalization, but they cannot in any way um, substitute the multilateral trading system. Um, there are some issues uh, which such uh, bilateral or regional initiatives simply cannot begin to tackle um, and which make sense to deal in, in a bigger format like in the WTO. Trade facilitation, for example, was negotiated in the WTO because it simply makes no sense to cut uh, red tape or streamline customs for one partner. Once you do uh, the reform at the border, you're doing it for everybody. You just don't do it for one particular partner. Um, similarly, it doesn't make sense to liberalize or to regulate, uh, to develop disciplines on, on financial um, on the financial system or telecoms regulations uh, for just one trade partner. Again, if you're doing it for one, you're doing it for everyone. Um, farming subsidies is another example. You can never tackle farming subsidies at, a, at the bilateral level. Uh, trade disciplines, for example, on, on uh, remedies like uh, anti-dumping, countervailing measures, safeguards, all of those you have to negotiate multilaterally. You cannot do it by, at a bilateral forum. So. Leaving aside for a moment the discipline side, if you look at geography, also the most dynamic uh, areas of the global economy are outside these bilaterals. The emerging economies, for example, are outside many of these. Um, the developing countries, which are the countries which are growing more, more quickly in the, in the world economy, are also outside. So you also have a geographic limitation when you are talking about these uh, initiatives. And I understand uh, why some countries have put uh, more focus on regional initiatives, particularly during a period when the WTO or the multilateral trading system was not delivering, was not delivering multilateral results. Uh, but the success in Bali has changed this, and it proved again that multilateral outcomes are possible. They will be difficult, but they are possible. So WTO members can continue pursuing these other positive initiatives, but we must also do everything that we can do to ensure that the process in Geneva is also moving forward and that we seize the opportunity that Bali has created. Now, in the post-Bali world for us in Geneva, there are essentially two priorities that we confront. 
The first one is to implement what was agreed in Bali. So the trade facilitation agreement was a key outcome, as you all know, uh, in Bali, and we are now in the process of implementation with a protocol of amendment, and I don't want to get too technical there, but this protocol of amendment essentially uh, should be adopted by the end of this month, 31st of July, and this is the protocol that allows the trade facilitation agreement to be formally adopted as a WTO legal text. So in, in, in Bali, we adopted the text, but it doesn't become a legal text until members accept it. And to, in order to accept, one step is to have this protocol um, uh, approved. And we have to do it by the 31st of July. Um, there are um, difficulties uh, to get that done, but we're working on that, and we're hopeful uh, that we'll be in a position to adopt it, um, delivering, in particular, uh, the support that we promised to developing countries uh, with the implementation of the trade facilitation agreement when we agreed in Bali. Um, we are taking action in the coming uh, days. Uh, I will be announcing a new WTO trade facilitation facility, uh, which will ensure that the necessary support reaches all members of the WTO without exception in this area. So, of course, Australia has been very supportive of this idea. And it has um, uh, been always when it comes to providing uh, support uh, to trade in developing countries, particularly in the region. I certainly hope that Australia will be actively involved and will support our new uh, trade facilitation agreement facility. Our second priority is to tackle the Doha round negotiations. So in Bali, the ministers instructed us um, to prepare by December this year a clearly defined work program on how to advance and how to conclude the Doha round. Now we need to decide once and for all whether we are going to do the Doha round or not. Uh, if yes, um, then let's do it quickly. We just don't, we cannot afford another decade of negotiation. So we have to do it quickly. And the obvious question is how quickly? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to give you deadlines, but it has to be quickly. Now, if no, if the answer is no, we're not going to do it. It's not for the taking. All right, then let's be honest about it. Let's accept that we failed, that we are not going to deliver that. But then let's turn the page and let's do other things. Let's move on to things that we can do and that we need to do in order to update the system with, to make it reflective of the world that we have today. The world changed immensely over the last 18 years. When we were negotiating um, the, 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 the Uruguay round, the internet didn't exist. And those are the rules that we have today. They don't reflect even that. In, in, it's funny enough, when we're negotiating in Bali, we're still talking about introducing electronic payments into the disciplines, if you can imagine. So that's, those are the kinds of disciplines that we have today. We have to update the system. It's as simple as that. Or we don't survive as an organization. So that's a, that's a big, um, a big um, a challenge. And I will be honest with you, when we talk about the Doha round, uh, in many places that I go, and I have been talking to leaders and different people, they all roll their eyes and they go, oh my god, here, here's this guy again talking about the Doha round. Now, this is a different Doha round. This is something that has to be done quickly. This is something that has to be practical and pragmatic. Uh, the WTO is a different place now after Bali. Uh, there is a new sense of momentum there. Um, like I said, I have met leaders from five continents. There are more than 20 countries so far after December. So including WTO uh, members at all stages of developments. And some of those that I visited were precisely the ones who had the biggest problems in 2008 when we, when we reached the, the, the impasse and negotiations stalled at that time. So in all cases, I have been pleased to hear words of support, uh, in particular that there is uh, strong support to get it done quickly. Uh, they all say, please just don't fail again. Uh, keep trying, but don't fail again. And that, that's something that we have to hear very carefully. Um, earlier today, I had meetings with uh, Andrew Robb and other key ministers here in Canberra. And I'm very grateful for the support that they have also offered. And there are some very significant issues on the table at this point in time. For Australia, there is important unfinished business in areas like uh, agriculture and services exports. Uh, moreover, uh, if we can uh, complete the round, it will then allow other issues to be discussed and advanced at the multilateral level for the first time in many, many years. 
Now, we're making progress. Uh, the big issues, and there's essentially the three key areas, so agriculture, industrial goods, and services, they are being discussed for the first time in six years. Uh, there is consensus that we'll need to deliver results in these areas. Uh, and members have agreed on a set of principles to guide the discussions. So principles such as doability or open-mindedness, uh, respecting the red lines um, of others, of course. Your own, it's <laughs> easy to respect. Uh, and keeping development also as a central goal of the negotiations. Realism is going to be key. I have no doubts about that. I think we have to understand this that this is not the round to end all rounds. This is not the end of the road. This is not the end of the process. We're not going to stop after the Doha round. So this is just one more uh, step in the process of liberalization. Let's take the one that we can now. Let's take a step which is commensurate with the size of our legs. And after that, we take other steps. Well, let's take this one first. The worst case scenario for the multilateral trading system for global trade is inaction. So there will be um, conversations in Geneva at this point forward that will be very, very important. We need to focus now on resolving the issues. We had been talking about process, about how we do it and what is it that we want to do. Actually, we were talking about whether we wanted to do it or not. That was the first question, and people want to do it, so let's move on. Now we're talking about substance. We're going into the specifics of each one of the problems that we had before. So there will be some tough conversations ahead of us in the coming months. Uh, very few uh, members have demands across all sectors, in services, agriculture, and industrial goods. Uh, and therefore, uh, we, we have to begin to identify the trade-offs. So what can we get from one area and another? For example, if you are ambitious on industrial goods uh, and you want results there, what can you offer in agriculture? And vice versa. So if you are very ambitious in agriculture, what kind of contribution can you give in, in industrial goods? So those kind of trade-offs have to be there. It's also very um, uh, common in Geneva when you ask someone, um, what can you do in this area? And they say, well, it depends. Depends is always the, f the first answer I get. It depends. <laughs> It always depends on somebody else. No, it depends on what that guy is going to do over there. I said, no, 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 I'm not asking what he wants. If he does that, what can you do here? It depends, and then it depends on something else. But it's very difficult to get the answer about what is it that you can actually do, all right? And that is the kind of pressure that we have to put on members, that they tell us not what they want from the others, but what is it that they can put on the table. So that kind of conversation is beginning in Geneva. It's very difficult to have, as you can imagine. Um, but we're not going to stop our work. Uh, we have to continue. We have December as a deadline, so if there is one deadline, December is a clear one. We have to, um, to, to do that, and we have to keep urgency as a factor of our negotiations. So to conclude, um, I want to return to the question that I posed at the start of my remarks, which is, whether our success in Bali will prove to be transformative for the WTO. Now, given where we are today, I think that the answer is quite clear, yes, which is yes, it will be transformative if we want it to be. So that's, that's the question. Uh, Bali has created the opportunity uh, to herald a new era for the WTO, essentially, but whether we take this opportunity is frankly up to members. They will have to decide that. It will be a question of political will. And I have no doubt that Australia will play an important role um, in this process, uh, including this year during its uh, G20 presidency, which will be very important. I am quite confident that you will uh, continue to engage in the negotiations um, and help to conclude the Doha round uh, once and for all. Australia has always been at the center of the debate, uh, helping to shape solutions. Uh, present new ideas creatively, um, especially when, when the talks hit rocky terrain. Um, and that pragmatic streak is precisely what we need at this point in time. Um, Bali showed, I think, unequivocally that multilateralism can work um, and that we can deliver outcomes that will boost uh, trade and support development and improve uh, people's lives. So let's keep going. Uh, the, 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 the motto, I think, in, in Geneva is never stop, just keep going. Even if, if, if the prospects of uh, achieving something is extremely difficult, and bef just before Bali, we didn't know whether we were going to have it. Just before Bali. When I got on the plane in Geneva, going to Bali, in a conversation with my wife, she <laughs> said, uh, 
so what do you think? Are we going to do it? And I said, I don't know, but be ready for a three-year vacation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it was a distinct possibility that we would not make it. And in fact, until 8 a.m. Saturday morning, we didn't know. It was at 8 a.m. that it happened. And then the meeting was at 10 a.m. And, and people began to celebrate <coughs> in my office at 8 a.m. I said, no, hang on, there are two hours to go. So it was in, in between those, that moment, those two hours, there was another fire which broke up. And we had to quench it. So you can never give it um, 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 a final uh, sign that you have done it uh, in Geneva until it's actually done. And even after it's done, you still need confirmation that it's really done. And that's where we are at this point in time. So let's seize what we have done. I think that's the point. Australia has been a big partner. I hope that we will continue this partnership as, as the um, negotiations advance in Geneva. They're going to be extremely hard. I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, but I, I still believe that it's doable um, if we keep going. So thank you very much for the opportunity to, to talk to you. And um, I don't know what the protocol is, whether there'll be questions or... You've left yourself lots of time yeah. for questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the protocol is lots of questions. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. Why don't you stay there? Okay. Yeah. Um, ambassadors open to questions, uh, and I look forward to many of them. Uh, I'd like to start. I have a number myself, but I'll, I'll restrain <laughs> myself. <laughs> First. They're happy. Well, Annie? I have one. Uh, you mentioned the word depends. You said, well, Mike. Sorry. And just local. Um, uh, it depends. Everyone says it depends, etc. And you say, well, what are you going to do? Now, of course, you know, there's no deal on this Doha thing so far because there's nothing to take from the table, as my colleague Bill Carmichael keeps on saying. And, and, um, and there's nothing to take from the table because no one's put anything on the table. And no one's put anything on the table because countries don't believe that the major gains from trade liberalisation occur unilaterally. And so, really, how, how are we really going to overcome that step? Right? I mean, there's been quite a few proposals put forward that we keep on harping about on effective transparency, but really what has been done to try and convince countries that the major gains depend on those unilateral liberalisation at home? Well, when you, when you have been in negotiations for a while, and unfortunately I've been there for quite a while, uh, one of the biggest challenges is, is to understand what is behind the proposal or what is behind the demand of another negotiator. Uh, often it is something that he needs to make a sale possible at home. So he really needs that in order to make uh, the, the, the political environment uh, um, feasible back home. But sometimes um, it has nothing to do with something that he needs. It's about ensuring that you have a hard time. And that makes a world of difference. So I think at this point in time, what is more important for us is to understand what is behind the discourse. So you hear sometimes, and I'm talking to, 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 to members, and I, I, I listen to them in the meeting room, and then when they're speaking to everybody else, and then it, to the media outside. And when I meet with them bilaterally, what I try to do is, okay, I heard all that. I don't buy half of it. So the half that I might buy, let me understand better. And then I begin to explore a little bit. And what they talk to me, what they say to me, is completely different from what they say in the room. And, but the difficulty is that I hear that from one and from another and from another and from another. So I, I know somehow what they what's behind what they're saying, what they're seeking, what the game is for them. But they don't talk to each other. So it's, it's very difficult to get um, that conversation going because if you put them together in the room, sitting around the table, they would never say anything that they, saw, that they told me. And I can put that on the table. So the difficulty is part process uh, also. Uh, and the fact that for a long time we haven't been truly negotiating, there is a lack of trust. They don't trust that if they put their cards on the table, 
Uh, the others are not simply going to look at the cards, put them in the pocket, and go away. Um, they don't trust that there will be engagement, that there will be a response uh, from the other side. That was one of the major challenges we had for Bali, um, that lack of trust uh, that existed. It was difficult to overcome. I think we are going through the same pains now. Um, it is difficult to take things off the table because when you take something off the table to make it easier for someone, you're making, of course, it harder for someone else who would like to have what is on the table at that point in time. So you have to figure out what that other person who is unhappy with the fact that you're taking something off the table, um, what, what you can put on the table to compensate for that. And these new trade-offs, which are different from the ones that we had before, are the ones that we have to, to figure out now. Now, there are trade-offs. I'm sure that there are trade-offs. The question is, where is the balance of this new equilibrium? How do you, to ensure the viability of the package and of the negotiations, how do you ensure that the movement that you make in one area is not making it impossible for another area? And, and that is difficult to, 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 to ascertain. I don't have a ready answer. I don't know now what that equilibrium is going to be. I may have a few in my head, um, and each one of the negotiators will have a different one in their heads. Uh, but what we have to do is test uh, these ideas um, uh, over and over. What clearly would not happen is an agreement on the basis of what we were negotiating in 2008. That's not going to happen. Can I just follow up on Andy's yeah. question and relate it specifically to the success in Bali mm -hmm. and the delivery of the trade facilitation agreement, uh, which one would have thought you know, was a laid-down kind of no-brainer. Uh, basically, the trade facilitation agreement delivers, uh, hopefully, uh, not yet implemented, but delivers potentially uh, the improvement, the uh, reduction of, uh, uh, an of uh, inefficiencies uh, in the delivery of goods into and out of uh, member economies uh, through improving customs procedures and processes, mechanisms that raise transaction costs across borders because basically countries haven't adopted best practice in this respect. Uh, you know, what does the WTO value add to delivering those things in each our own interests? That's, that's the key question, I think. Uh, and what is the particular process that was so successful in Bali in getting a large group of the membership to commit to that? I think the major problem we had with the Trade Facilitation Agreement early on was that there was a perception on the part of the developing countries that that was not something that they wanted, that they were effectively um, giving uh, concessions, they were making contributions and, giving, and, and conceding to things with nothing in return. So they were getting nothing for what they were giving. There were many countries, for example, delegations that would say, well, uh, the trade facilitation agreement facilitates the exports of the others into my um, country, but it doesn't facilitate my exports you know, somewhere else, which is in itself a, a false statement uh, because the border uh, bureaucracy uh, goes both ways, both importing and exporting. Um, that perception changed very slowly over the negotiations. As we were negotiating the, the agreement, I think that um, not only was the, um, the customs uh, authorities uh, looking at that, but also the business uh, in these countries were looking at that. And I had a very interesting conversation with the industry of one particular country where the government was being very, very negative uh, about the trade facilitation agreement. And, and I received representatives of the industry of that country. And they told me how important it was to get the trade facilitation agreement going. I said, well, that's very interesting because your government is not, uh, is not very helpful. Uh, you know, so what's going on? I mean... And they say, oh, they're not, they're not being helpful. And I said, no, not at all. Uh, it's completely the opposite of what you're saying. Uh, they're saying that it helps exports but the, of others, but not theirs. And, and they were saying, well, but even to be an efficient exporter, I have to be an efficient importer. If I, in my industry, if I don't have the components, if I don't have the pieces in time, I lose contracts. I, I just, it's, it's a huge headache. So I, I do need that. And I said, well, well, Go tell your government about that. Uh, I don't think they know. So, and funny enough, in, in a matter of weeks, 
the government was responding in a much more positive way. So that kind of wrong perception about the impact of what we do with the trade facilitation agreement was permeating in the countries. As they were negotiating, they were seeing also that a lot of that they already did. Uh, and what they didn't do was desirable, was something that they wanted to do. Uh, they just didn't have the means to do it. So we said, okay, you don't have the means to do that. We will help you get the means to do that. So we will give you technical assistance. We will give you technical cooperation. We will make sure that we train your people. There will be money there to support projects that will uh, update your system and upgrade your, your, your procedures. And over time, they were getting used to that. They were getting used to that and with the idea that they were going to have a more efficient uh, border procedure. And at the end of the process, um, they were mostly on board. Everybody was on board. That's why it was so difficult for some countries that had difficulties and that uh, were negotiating up to the wire um, to say no. Because if they said no, they would have to explain the failure to 150-some countries. You know, it was going to be very hard uh, politically. So it was a complicated process, but um, over time, I think the, 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 the perception was that this was something that was desirable for everyone. So that's what changed. Interesting to bore down into that process a bit more later on, perhaps, but let's open it to some more questions. Yes. Uh, th uh, thank you for um, sharing with us um, your views on um, Bali and the success of the, the WGO. Um, I just wanted to know if you could share with us some of your reflections so far on your quite um, interesting and amazing career, particularly um, when you became the Director General of the WGO, when you first found out, what did run through your head and what did you think <laughs> were the challenges and opportunities that could come through the WGO having you as their Director General? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I, when I was, uh, <laughs> when my candidacy was launched, um, and I, <laughs> I, had, I was giving a press interview, and one of the reporters said, why are you doing that? Um, you, you, you are a rising, uh, you know, uh, authority. You're, you're, you're doing well, you're doing great, you're good, great position, you, things are looking good for you. Why are you going to bury yourself with the WTO? I mean, that's a sure failure. Why, <laughs> why are you doing that? And I, and I think that, um, and my answer to him at that time was, oh, I, was I, I joked, and I said, you know, my, my mother asked me the same thing, <laughs> you know. And um, the fact is that if, if, if you look at the, the, the challenges and give up even before you tackle them, you'll never do anything. Uh, you'll never go anywhere. If you, like before Bali, when, when I took office, we had more than 600 square brackets in the text and no meetings. People were just not even meeting. So how are you going to get all those brackets off with effectively no meetings? Uh, so it was, it was difficult, but um, you just have to keep figuring out ways of making convergence happen. Uh, and if you have been negotiating for a while, um, you're used to the tricks. And there's a lot of tricks and, and, and uh, gamesmanship in this. A lot of, in, in the multilateral uh, uh, arena, uh, personalities count a lot. Uh, sometimes deals happen or do not happen because of the chemistry between the negotiators. It has nothing to do with the economic interests <laughs> of the countries. Just the negotiators don't see eye to eye. So it is, it is something that uh, is unpredictable. Uh, what you have to do is keep, keep trying to find ways. You know, there usually is a way. It's sometimes not obvious, but there is usually a way to, to, to get around things. The future challenges, um, they look huge. Um, and I don't know exactly which way we're going to find. But uh, the more I talk to people, uh, the more uh, opportunities show up, you know, here or there or here or there. And sometimes all of those opportunities that you figure out, then one day, boom, they all fall down. You say, oh, I have nothing left. But then they show up again. You just have to keep going. Uh, it's unpredictable. It's really, really, really unpredictable. You can't tell. Just have to go. Other question? Given the challenges you alluded to with regard to the protocol of amendments, um, if we aren't able to move forward on that, what next for Bali and for the WTO? If we don't have it. It will be difficult. Very, very difficult. Because um, if we don't have that... Um, 
the question is going to be why don't we have that? And if we don't have that because we are um, holding things hostage to results in, in, in different areas, um, then it's a no-go. I, I don't think that uh, you can ever get around that. Um, in particular, um, you have to be mindful of the bargains that are struck. So everybody knew in Bali what the bargain was. Now, you may want to revisit a bargain that was struck, but there are consequences to that uh, at all levels. Um, the trust is gone, so why am I going to trust another bargain? Uh, what, what makes me sure that that new bargain won't be revisited? So I keep paying, 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 and paying, and the bargains keep, to be, keep being reopened. So the trust factor is going to be very, very critical. Um, and also, some linkages are just impossible. They're just impossible in terms of timing, in terms of procedures. So it, it is going to be a major challenge. Um, my fear is that if we, if we can't get the trade facilitation agreement um, implemented, uh, it is going to be very damaging. Uh, not only for the trade facilitation agreement, but all the other Bali decisions and the, and the Doha round and the negotiations in general. So it is, it is going to be very costly. So what are the important steps going forward to ensure that that happens quickly, not, not in three years' time, but more quickly than that? According to the uh, uh, schedule that we had agreed, we had to, by the 31st of July, we have to agree on the protocol of amendment, uh, which is pretty straightforward. There's no, it's not rocket science. It's just write the protocol. It's very, a few sentences. Uh, so the problem there is political, it's not technical. So that one should be done. Uh, we hope that this facility that we're putting in place next week uh, will help in that, in that regard. Um, after that, then uh, if we adopt the protocol, uh, countries will have um, approximately 18 months uh, to ratify uh, have go through their domestic procedures to ratify the, the agreement and to accept uh, the agreement, and then they will have to deposit in the WTO the instrument of acceptance. So where they say, okay, this agreement has been approved by my government, and here it is, my instrument of acceptance. Once two-thirds of the members have agreed, and we expect that to happen within 18 months, then the agreement enters into force for those that have deposited the instrument of acceptance. And the others keep coming as, as, as they go. Um, there is not much in terms of technical work to be done uh, anymore. Uh, it's about deciding whether we want to do it or not. I think um, we will know in a couple of weeks. Yes. Thank you. If we take the optimistic viewpoint and we Hold assume... Hold the mic to your chin. <laughs> thanks. If we take the optimistic viewpoint and if we assume that next week is a success and then the post-Bali period leads to a post-Doha period, looking back on the, the Doha agenda, what do you think are the sort of important elements for a, a new agenda for the WTO, the sort of designed features for something that will be easier to conclude perhaps than mm. this one was? I think that inevitably, um, as you conclude uh, this round, um, more likely than not, members are going to be setting the stage for the next set of negotiations. So you, you, you may have a situation where you have a built-in agenda. So for example, things that we could not conclude uh, during this round or that did not go far enough and that some members felt that they wanted to take it further um, they would say, okay, I, I'm not finishing this now, but I would like to continue this conversation, and then it will continue. So part of what we have on the table may continue as part of the future negotiating agenda. Other countries, however, may say, look, I have been trying to talk about this particular issue for a long time, and uh, every time I try, you guys tell me that it's uh, not doable because this round is not done, etc., etc. I want assurances that this is going to be discussed now. So I will only agree on the conclusion of this round if we have in the work program for the future a conversation about this issue here. And that may happen in several different issues. 
Um, it will depend a lot on the appetite of members. Um, I can only say things that they mention. Uh, I don't know. It's whatever they decide. As you know, the, the DG um, had best mind his own business, <laughs> right? And let the members decide what they want to do. So I hear a lot of things about investments. I hear people talk about the environment. I hear people talking about uh, um, costs of, of, of labor, social uh, regulations. Uh, I hear people talking about the transnational movement of uh, people, all sorts of things. So I, I think at this point in time, it will be difficult to, to know what exchange rates, some people are talking about exchange. So it depends. It depends on how much emphasis each one of them will put on the issues that, they are, that, that are dear to them. Um, I, I don't know. At this point in time, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, next one. Yep. Tim. Take a couple more questions. We'll have mm. to close it. Thanks. Um, you said in your um, in your speech that um, all trade agreements at different levels have to be complementary and symbiotic. Um, and Did you what? I'm sorry. Symbiotic. Didn't you say that all trade agreements have to be complementary, and they have to work together? Um, with there's a growing body of FTAs out there, and today the B20 um, at their summit was saying that some of these trade agreements can cause overlapping standards and they can cause rising costs for business. Um, and you're here for the G20 meeting, so do you see a role for the G20 to try and, I don't know, create more, more convergence in the system or more coherence? Is there a way that you can, these trade agreements can work better for business and be more of a, of a whole rather than just the sum of parts? Yeah, I think business is, is very pragmatic in general, so they, they want to advance their agenda wherever they can. Uh, to the extent that multilaterally we're not delivering, they will go for whatever avenue there is available. Uh, I think bilateral deals and plurilateral deals are, are obvious uh, options. Um, it is not obvious, however, that something that you negotiate... Forget market access. Market access is very uh, precise, very specific. So if you negotiate preferences with another party, that's done. right? So that's very straightforward. Uh, it's a different thing if you're negotiating disciplines or if you're negotiating uh, standards. Um, those are more complicated because it doesn't follow that because you have negotiated a standard between two economies, it doesn't matter the size of those economies, that that is going to be automatically uh, accepted as a multilateral benchmark. Um, in fact, often you see at the multilateral level people rejecting standards which are negotiated by others, not because the standards are bad or anything of the kind, but simply because they did not negotiate that. They say, oh, this is not my baby, this is your baby, don't, don't bring it to my table. So they want to start from scratch. So it is not obvious that uh, by negotiating multiple standards at uh, developed economies or, 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 or where you have critical mass in terms of global economy, that that means that it automatically is going to be multilateralized. Um, inevitably, over time, um, there is a convergence in that direction. But um, it is, it is um, for the WTO, uh, a very challenging um, task, which is harmonize standards which are negotiated in different areas. I think the, the best way to do it would be to look at the practices, uh, best practices, what people have been doing. Uh, many of these standards are already there and people are already adopting them and implementing them even if they don't have it in the letter of law. So it, is, it, is, it will require a lot of uh, homework uh, before you can actually say what is the best uh, approach to each kind of standard and, and discipline that has been negotiated. My gut feeling, and that's nothing more than a gut feeling, is that depending on the issue, you have a different process. So depending on one, uh, if you're talking about God knows what, uh, uh, trade remedies, uh, it is one, one way of approaching that. If you are talking about phytosanitary measures, it will be a much more contentious uh, discussion. Uh, will probably involve uh, um, entities other than the WTO, international organizations other than the WTO itself. Um, if you're talking about customs measures, you may have to tap into WCO, for example, to see what's going on over there. So 
it's going to be challenging and it will not be a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it will depend on the kind of discipline that you negotiated, uh, that you, how to bring that into the multilateral forum. Your answer to that question kind of underlines the worries that a lot of people have about the trade regime at the moment, really. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, it could be captured in a way that uh, makes uh, a multilateral settlements more and more difficult. And convergence isn't... Convergence might be a it process, is, but it's not necessary to it a process. A legitimate, it, is, it is a legitimate concern. Yeah. I think it is a legitimate concern. So what is your hope uh, for... Uh, taking serious discussion of that issue into the G20, for example, or other mm -hmm. such forums? We are doing that. We are talking to them. Um, I think, um, I think the, the tendency is to seize opportunities wherever they show up, and let's deal with the consequences later, um, which is not necessarily a bad approach. Uh, it's a very pragmatic one. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're facilitating convergence and facilitating a, 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 a multilateral uh, uh, predictable uh, system and sound system. Um, if you have too many standards and incompatible standards showing up in different places, you may make um, the cost of transactions even higher rather than lower. So we have to look at it uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. It's difficult to, at this, at this level, of course, uh, the, the preferred solution would be to negotiate everything multilaterally, because then it applies to everybody at the same time. There is no risk of non-multilateralization. So that is clearly the best uh, um, approach. Um, is it realistic to expect that all of these standards will emerge at the multilateral level? I'm not so sure that that will be the case. There may be some instances where uh, bilateral negotiations may help. I'll give you one example. Uh, in the Doha round, when we were negotiating um, um, NTB, so non-tariff non barriers, um, the major problem was, frankly, between the United States and the European Union. You know, they had their standards and didn't want to accept each other's standards. Uh, so a lot of the problems that we had in advancing was those two didn't see eye to eye. And there were many countries who said, look, we're open, we're still developing our standards, so whatever you agree, I'll, I'll follow that, I'm not a problem. Uh, but the big ones did not agree with each other. So to the extent, for example, that in the, the transatlantic uh, conversation, they figure that out, uh, it may help. It may help. There will be some who say, again, who, who will say again, this is not my baby, this is your standard, I don't have nothing to do with it, we have to negotiate with me now. And that is the nature of multilateral negotiations, and that's okay. But it will, there will be several instances when agreement between two or three is precisely at the root of the impasse at the multilateral level. Some people think, for example, that the problem with the WTO is the number of countries. Oh, you have 160. How can you ever negotiate with 160? And my answer to that is, if we were six, we would still not have a deal. <laughs> right? If we were two, you would still not have a deal. So it's not, the problem is not 160. The problem is that there are big divisions among the big players, and we have to figure out a way of, of bridging that. Time for one last question. Ambassador, a few years ago, a small group of academics at, uh, at Sydney universities published a book uh, called How to Kill a Country, Australia's Free Trade Agreement with the United States. And in that book, they gave uh, evidence about the way Canada and Mexico in particular had, in their view, been taken for a ride. Um, the government at the time, of course, sang the praises of that FTA and said that Australia was a, a major winner. You, you probably don't want to comment on uh, take sides in that debate, but <laughs> <Feel free. laughs> uh, nevertheless, would you like to comment on whether or not in free trade agreements between countries with massively different economies and economic and political strength that uh, one country always comes out a lot better than, than the other or the others if there were more than two countries involved? 
We have to distinguish a little bit um, the economic reality from the political reality. I think in many, many, quite often, uh, that discussion of whether or not something was good for the country uh, will, will have different colors uh, depending on the eye of the beholder. Um, it's funny, for example, that in, in some uh, countries, uh, the trade word, or the, the trade, the word trade is almost never mentioned because that costs votes um, just, just for mentioning trade. And of course, that is a, a, a distortion of the situation. Um, you, when you have a, a process of um, uh, trade liberalization, be it in, in, a, in the situation of negotiations among different countries or a unilateral, a unilateral move towards trade liberalization, it's very difficult to tell who won and who lost um, in, um, in, in, in a short period of time. Uh, most of the gains uh, in terms of restructuring, in terms of reallocation of resources, optimization of allocation of resources, all of that comes over a period of years. So there will be, after a, 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 a movement in terms of trade liberalization, um, consequences both positive and negative. Now, the tended, the eco economics tends to show, economic theory shows that, and um, practice and experience also tends to show that, is that over time, the positives out, outbalance, uh, have a positive, um, the positives outnumber the negatives. And that the major um, result is a, positive, a net positive gain for the country. Now, of course, it varies from country to country. You can't have a, 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 a one-size-fits-all approach again. Uh, but the problem with that is that in economics, you may have 10, 15 years to fully realize the process of trade liberalization. In politics, the elections are a couple of years from now. So can you afford to wait 10 or 15 years to realize the benefits of economic opening when you have elections a couple of years from now? And you're going to lose votes. Now, that dilemma is never really solved. Um, and I think that it is a bit simplistic sometimes to say uh, this country won or that country lost. When I talk to Mexicans in general, um, talking about NAFTA, um, they complain about uh, certain areas where um, there was a need for restructuring the, in, the, in, the, in their economy. But at the same time, they also point out to many other areas where it was a positive gain for them. Uh, and the same happens if you talk to the Americans or the Canadians. I mean, it's, it's just a, a new balance. And that new balance has to be perceived at the end of the day as something positive for them overall. It's difficult to tell. Um, in, in processes like that, unequivocally, that this was the, 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 the winner, this was the loser, most of the times they all win, but they win in different ways. And the new balance is a different balance than the original one. Whether you like the original balance, it will depend, obviously, on, on what you do in the, econ in the economy. So if you are in, in a losing sector, in a sector that had to restructure and you, had, you lost your job, you had to be retrained to do something else, you, of course, are going to be critical about that, that agreement. But if you were on a sector that uh, was a net uh, winner and immediately gained uh, market and, and, and was more competitive and, and um, got more opportunities out of that deal, you would see it in a, in a favorable way. I have not so far read any unequivocal study saying that uh, this, this, that was a bad deal for anyone or an unequivocal study saying this was a great deal for anyone. It's just a different balance. And I, my personal belief is that the new equilibrium was a, was a gain for all of them. But um, politics doesn't necessarily follow uh, economic uh, logic or, or statistics. Um, so if I am a politician, I will say that it was good, a good deal, uh, if it gains, gains me votes. If, 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 if by saying that it was a awful deal gets me votes, I will say that it was an awful deal, terrible deal. <laughs> so. Well, our hope is to help you get uh, the politics aligned with the economics in the, the WTO. And that's, that's the biggest challenge. To uh, yeah. take the trade <laughs> facilitation agreement forward quickly. Yeah.
and succeed in your ambition to conclude the Doha round quickly, but also to think about the system beyond the, Do the Doha round because I think uh, there is a lot of anxiety out there about where the system as a whole is headed. Mm. So thank you very much for sharing mm. this with it. us, uh, Ambassador, and we look forward to staying in touch with you on your journey and further successes uh, at the Director Generalship of the WTO. Well, let's hope yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.